Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is for Pentecost 2006 and is entitled Hardest to Bear, Easiest to Forget, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 4th, 2006. Last summer, when my wife and son visited France, they left the beaten tourist track to explore the Paris catacombs. In 1786, municipal authorities converted some Roman limestone quarries into a subterranean cemetery. In nearly 200 miles of dark, dank tunnels, Parisians have meticulously stacked the skeletal remains of five million people from floor to ceiling in various symmetrical patterns. Graffiti line the narrow passages and the low ceilings, commenting on the certainty of death and the uncertainty of life. One graffiti, for example, reads, Crazy that you are. Why do you promise yourself to live a long time, you who cannot count on a single day? In an ancient Semitic version of the Paris Catacombs, the prophet Ezekiel pictures the nation of Israel as a wasteland of bones scattered across a desert valley. Ezekiel chapter 37. Lifeless, windswept and eerie, the bones that were very dry were a metaphor of Israel's exile to pagan Babylon. In Ezekiel 37:11 we read, "Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off." The psalmist and the apostle Paul for this week also describe the shadows of death, futility and hopelessness that can darken our lives. After marveling at the many splendors of creation, the wind and the rain, mountains and valleys, wild donkeys and nesting birds, rock badgers and sea monsters, bread and wine that gladden human hearts, after marveling at all these splendors, the psalmist switches gears. He acknowledges the radical dependence and the ultimate contingency of all life. We read in Psalm 104, verses 27 to 29, These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. But when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Paul likewise paints a sober picture of the entire cosmos. For now, he says, all creation waits, subject to frustration and in bondage to decay. The whole creation, he writes, groans as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Turning from the cosmic to the personal, Paul says that our lives are characterized by weakness, ignorance, and pain. Like the entire cosmos, we too, he writes, groan inwardly. Romans 8, 
to 27. Thank God then for Pentecost when we celebrate the descent of the Spirit into our lives. The word Pentecost comes from the Greek Pentecostos, meaning 50th, from which one of the most important feasts in the Jewish calendar derives its name. Fifty days after Passover, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks. Many centuries later, after their exile to Babylon, Pentecost became one of the great pilgrimage feasts of Judaism, a time when diasporate Jews returned to Jerusalem for worship. Since about the second century, Christians have celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus on the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, and with his descent, the birth of the church. After Christmas and Easter, Pentecost marks the most important celebration of the whole Christian calendar. Just just what does the descent of the Spirit into our lives mean? What is the significance of Pentecost, and what ought we to expect? As with many plots in the Christian story, we need to steer a course between saying too much or too little. Contrary to the messages of many popular books and television preachers, fullness of life in the power of the Spirit does not mean that God will solve all your problems by dramatic intervention. Human experience, of course, teaches us this hard lesson But for some Christians, the dream dies hard and the temptation remains too powerful not to expect wholesale deliverance here and now. Paul, though, described his own life as, quote, harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Most of us experience our own private versions of Paul's prognosis, whether a lot or a little. Dysfunctions inherited from my family of origin, friends who feel stuck in exhausted marriages, teenagers hospitalized with eating disorders, apparent suicide in our school district, or surgery that reminds me of my frailty and mortality. The early desert mothers and fathers counseled believers to, quote, expect trials until your last breath, end quote. St. Macarius of Egypt in the 5th century was even more blunt. He wrote, I am convinced that not even the apostles, although filled with the Holy Spirit, were therefore completely free from anxiety. Contrary to the stupid view expressed by some, The advent of grace does not mean the immediate deliverance from anxiety. But neither should we succumb to despair. We do not lose heart, writes Paul, though while outwardly we waste away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16 In our outlooks, attitudes, and expectations, the Spirit of God gives us the graces of equanimity, hope, 
empathy, patience, perseverance, and peace. Paul says that, paradoxically, his experience of God's mighty power coexists with the extremities of human weakness, suffering, hardship, and mental anguish. His struggles are acute, but so is his transformation real. We have this treasure in jars of clay, he writes, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9. Elsewhere, Paul describes the gift of the Spirit as a deposit that guarantees a future inheritance, or the first fruits of a fall harvest. A deposit is not a full payment, but it is a guarantee. And first fruits are limited, but they do foretell what is to come. The key then is to live with a confident expectation of our ultimate future, no matter how bleak our penultimate circumstances. We seek to experience what one theologian called the isness of the shall be. We pray to know a sure but limited sense of the already of God's coming kingdom, even though our experience of it awaits a future not yet. Our experiences of a real but limited transformation of the inner person today orient us to a confident expectation of a comprehensive renewal in the future. Christians, write Frederick Beekner, ought to be, quote, people who have been delivered just enough to know that there's more where that came from, and whose experience of that little deliverance that has already happened inside themselves, and whose faith in the deliverance still to happen, is what sees them through the night. In the end, Paul insists that our present sufferings cannot compare to our future glory. He acknowledges our bondage to decay, but awaits a glorious freedom. He experiences abandonment, but looks forward to adoption. Despite everything that threatens our identities, he tells us to have faith in the redemption of our bodies. Like pain in childbirth, Paul says that our sufferings might be hardest to bear, but eventually they will be easiest to forget. And now for further reflection. Number one, is it a cop-out to rationalize current suffering by appealing to a future redemption? Secondly, consider Paul's words in Romans 8.24. Who hopes for what he already has? Number three, how have Christians oversold life in the Spirit by promising too much or saying too much?
Or perhaps how have we undersold life in the Spirit by expecting and saying too little? And finally, what does Pentecost mean to you? My book review this week is of a book entitled The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, New York, not 2005, 227 pages. Into the unremarkable routines of our lives explodes the unthinkable, the incomprehensible. At nine o'clock one evening, Joan Didion and her husband John Gregory Dunn sat down to dinner in the living room of the New York City apartment. They had just returned from the hospital where they had visited their only child, Quintana, who five days earlier was admitted to the hospital for septic shock and was put on life support after an induced coma. John talked about World War I. He asked Joan for a second drink of scotch. He then raised his left hand and slumped over dead from a massive heart attack. A few days later at her computer, Didion wrote, life changes fast, life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. Her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, writes Didion, is my attempt to make sense of the period that followed, weeks and then months that cut loose any fixed idea I ever had about death, about illness, about probability and luck, about good fortune and bad, about marriage and children and memory, about grief, about the ways in which people do and do not deal with the fact that life ends, about the shallowness of sanity, about life itself. As writers, Didion and her former husband Dunn had worked at home together almost every day during 40 years of marriage. In the space of a few seconds, all of that ended. By magical thinking, Didion means the paroxysms of disbelief, denial, and even derangement that express themselves in any number of irrationalities in the months that followed John's abrupt death. She tried to reconstruct a timeline of events. She read medical and psychological literature to understand death itself and her grieving process. She describes her efforts to, quote, bring him back, end quote, and her feelings of isolation, rage, helplessness, vulnerability, and self-pity. After a year, when she started to write the present book, she says the craziness ended, but neither clarity nor resolution followed. She discovered that she did not believe the creeds she learned growing up in the Episcopal Church were in the resurrection of the dead, nor had John. In the last four sentences of the book, Didion compares her experience to memories of swimming in the ocean. Quote, you had to feel the swell change. You had to go with the change. John told me that. No eye is on the sparrow, but he did tell me that. 
The New York Times identified Didion's book as one of the five most notable books of nonfiction for 2005, and no doubt it will take its place alongside other classics on bereavement, such as C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking. For film this week, I review a Palestinian film called Paradise Now from the year 2005. We first meet the childhood friends Saeed and Khaled as ordinary garage mechanics. But not too far into this movie, their spiritual advisor Jamal informs them that they have been appointed for a suicide bombing mission in Tel Aviv. As young Palestinians doomed to a future of oppression and poverty, we sense their humiliation and hopelessness. We watch as they are promised glory as martyred heroes and transport to heaven by angels. If it's even possible, we can almost understand how and why someone would volunteer for such a mission. Palestinian director Hani Abu Assad explores the religious, the socioeconomic, the deeply personal, and the violently political characteristics of these two characters. But to his credit, Abu Assad does not take this film in a linear direction. Saeed's girlfriend, Suha, who was born in France and raised in Morocco, objects to the plans for reasons of both principle and prudence. Technical glitches complicate the mission. Family matters enter in. And at one point, Saeed and Khaled get separated. Only in the last two minutes of this nail-biter do you learn the outcome. I thought that Paradise Now was a fantastic film of an important issue today. In Arabic, with English subtitles. Paradise Now, a Palestinian film from the year 2005. For poetry this week, we've posted a prayer for Pentecost taken from the Reformed Church in America. Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, at the beginning of time you moved over the face of the waters you breathe into every living being the breath of life. Come, Creator Spirit, and renew the whole creation. Holy Spirit, voice of the prophets, you inflame men and women with a passion for your truth, and through them call your people to the ways of justice and compassion. Come, Spirit of righteousness, and burn in our hearts. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, by your power Jesus came to bring good news to the poor and release to those held captive. Come, liberating Spirit, and free us from the powers of sin and death. Holy Spirit, Advocate, Teacher, you speak to us of our Lord and show us the depth of his love. Come, Spirit of Truth, abide in us and lead us in the way of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, wind in flame, 
You fill disciples with joy and courage, empowering them to preach your word and to share your good news. Come, Spirit of power, make us bold witnesses of your redeeming love. Holy Spirit, Spirit of peace, you break down barriers of language, race, and culture and heal the divisions that separate us. Come, reconciling spirit, and unite us all in the love of Christ. Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, at the close of the age, all creation will be renewed to sing your praises. Come, creator spirit, and make us new creations in Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining Journey with Jesus for Pentecost 2006, June the 4th. And please join us every week for a lectionary essay, a book review, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.